We're here today via a new platform. Uh, we're not in person for the first time ever. This is a new experience for all of us, but we're really excited to have Justin Pendergrass on the show with us today. Uh, Justin, how's it going, man? Yeah, it's going really well, man. Thanks for having me. Yeah, of course. We're super excited. So I actually mm-hmm. met, Cobra and I met Justin at a recovery rally that you were performing at in Anchorage like a couple years ago or a year ago. And I, for like the last two years, we've been trying to, a couple times, trying a couple times to get on the show and it hasn't quite worked out. And so now we finally got it. And we're all really excited. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so I'll kind of start with our, our usual opening question here. And so kind of take us back to a uh, month, couple months, uh, six months to before you got into recovery and kind of tell us about what spurred your decision to get into recovery. Yeah. Um, let's see. I was probably 23 years old. Um, and I was living in an apartment with my, my wife, my newly wed wife, well, probably two years in, um, I had a four year old daughter and, um, I was really struggling with just finding my place and my purpose. And, you know, the drugs were helping me to numb like the mental health struggles that I was having and all the battles that I was running into, um, stuff that I didn't feel like music was actually helping with at the time. So I I spiraled into my drug addictions, you know, uh, kind of dabbling in a little bit of everything. Um, never like meth, heroin or anything like that, but I really liked pills. I really liked drinking, um, smoked a lot of weed and it didn't really help because I was working at, uh, Fred Myers at the time in the liquor department. So everything was just easily accessed. It was okay for me to just get off of work and buy a six pack and then go home and, and down right. it by myself. <clears throat> right. And totally normal too. In your cultural yeah. context, you know, of course you work, work hard, come home, have, you know, have a beer, two, six. Yeah. Nobody really Twelve thinks pack. twice. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, it just, uh, it actually was this lady that I worked with that I couldn't stand. Um, that kind of like <laughs> took the shift for me. Um, I was in there, I was working and, um, it was a long, hard day. It was, it was tourist season. Everybody's running through there. The, the lines were always like 30 people long. Customers are mean because if they didn't have their ID, I'd have to tell them, no, I can't serve you. Like you can't have any liquor and mm-hmm. they'd be mad. They're like, I'm easily 60 years old. Why can't you give me <laughs> any, right. like, give me my <laughs> liquor? And I'm like, man, I can't. It's just, it's the law. I'm not allowed to hand. I'm not allowed to give you nothing without your ID. So, um, mm-hmm. so like people were like yelling in my face and, and it just, it was just getting to me. And then I go on and I, the lines would finally short enough for me to finally get a break. So I, I, I go on my mm-hmm. 15, use the restroom, grab something to eat, snack on real quick. And I come back probably three or four minutes early from my break. And this lady that I'm working with comes up to me and starts yelling at me. Where were you? Oh I needed God. your help. It was crazy in here. And I just looked at her and I just like set my apron down on the counter and I walked out. I was done. Mm. Um, I My plan was to go home and just, you know, drink away my sorrows and just, you know, be done with it all. But my car broke down on my way home. Um, so I didn't have, you know, I didn't really have <laughs> any any direction or any like, what am I going to do now? Right. Like uh, my wife and I were on the <laughs> fritz, like we were fighting all the time. It was not a fun environment at home um Mm -hmm. 
I was probably talking to too many other people, um, trying to find that acceptance in other people rather than in my wife. Mm. And, um, you know, I, I woke up the next morning after, you know, doing exactly what I said I was going to do when I got home, being mad about it all. And, uh, I applied for jobs for a couple of days and it just, nothing was coming up. And, uh, I decided, you know, I'm going to go back to school. I'm still fighting with my addictions in the middle of it. Um, Mm -hmm. and I, I mean, I had nothing, no idea what I was going to do. We, uh, we ended up shortly after that losing our apartment. I had to move in with my in-laws. Um, and there was nowhere for me to actually use, um, Hmm. when I was living there. So like there was no, so I'm like, I'm living in this house where I can't go and cope the way that I normally cope. So I'm just angry all the time. Hmm. And, um, I started going to church with them again. And then I just, I got reengaged with Christ, um, had a real spiritual awakening, you know, um, ended up focusing all my time on my school. Didn't have time to get high. Didn't have time to get drunk or anything like that because I was too busy with, with college. And, um, you know, I was going to church whenever I had free time. I was working a full-time job, you know, trying to be a dad too. And I, I ran out of time to do drugs. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> right. So I, I kind of just fell in it like that guys, you know, um, I didn't go to treatment. I didn't find any like person to mentor me or anything like that yet. Um, it was just God, you know, I started going to church. I started, you know, leaning into Christ and seeing what it is that he could do for me. And really what he has done for me. Mm -hmm. Um, Do you think school, do you think like uh, just having school and like some structure outside of like a nine to five kind of gave you, helped to like engage you in that new sense of purpose and like the kind of what you've been looking for, you know, just a place for you and a sense of purpose as to like kind of what you were doing. Do you think uh, school played a part in that? Absolutely. It became that like the goal, right? It, it gave me something to work for that wasn't for someone else. It was directly for me. And, you know, it, it really created this, this paradigm shift in my life where it was like, Hey, Justin, you could do something other than just, you know, sit on your butt. It's to kind of help reengage your sense of self-worth a little bit. And like, yeah, kind of really. just gave you a sense of a goal and an ends to something, you know, cause I think Some that's confidence. hard with people. Like when they get into early recovery is like finding well, I guess when you get past the first like year or two of early recovery, you know, recovery is the purpose when you get into early recovery, especially a lot of the people that we talk to that go through like a traditional 12 step program, like you get out and like, that's the purpose now, right. Is to like be in recovery, especially in early recovery and like recover. And then you get two, three years down the road. And I think our friend that we talked to on here quite often, his name is Zach has mentioned this a couple of times, you know, and then it's like, after that, what do you do? You know, you find a job, you have, you have to find something more that gives you that new sense driven that new sense of driven purpose and like something whether it is you know like like you said church school but something where there's other people and that's outside of yourself that's like you can contribute to something that kind of gives you that sense of purpose and self-worth that like i think a lot of people use whatever kind of vices you want to use you know for people like you and i it's alcohol or drugs or something like that to fill that kind of that void that's left with this like sense of wandering. But I think right. like <clears throat> in general, that's like a life thing, you know, is like finding a place or something that you can really like 
find a sense of purpose in is like one of those like general goals of life, you know, for everybody. Mm-hmm. Which I think that's just kind of a cool thing that I'm in college too. So it's like kind of like a reinvigorating thing to hear, I guess. So I'm a little biased, obviously, <laughs> but yeah, no, I kind you... of had a similar experience. I had a similar experience, man. Yeah. I mean, I moved, before I moved yeah. here, I wasn't in school and I was kind of just building houses, you know, and like, it was kind of a cool thing, but it was like, you know, living for the weekends. Houses. Like, yeah. I was building houses when I went back to school. Yeah. Yeah. Me too. Oh, like <laughs> I get it, man. I get it. Uh, it it, it yeah, just what, it, it gave me that sense of belonging somewhere you know mm-hmm. I, I met a lot of really cool people um i do not use my degree um it gave me confidence but i don't use it it's uh, honestly i feel like i wasted a lot of my time but if anything <laughs> didn't come out of it i did you know i did get clean from mm-hmm. the the really hard stuff that i was fighting you know yeah and hey i just want to rewind a little bit and and kind of get an idea of what exactly happened because man from what it sounds like there was a point where you're basically you know all your vices are gone you're forced to to live with your in-laws and you're trapped and basically angry and then it just like kind of 180s you know i mean it's not it's not that easy it's not like you flipped a switch and just oh man everything's good now but like what was right. it that turned that around? Like, did your in-laws treat you with a lot of like kindness, oh, forgiveness? Man. Cause I imagine you weren't the most fun person to <laughs> hang out with at that point. Like if I'm trapped I'm and Always. I can't go anywhere and I can't, I don't have my vices. I'm upset. <laughs> I'm very upset yeah. all the time basically. So how did that work? So, um, actually a couple things. I went to my father-in-law and I was like, Hey man, I'm struggling with these things. And then he, um, he doesn't understand. He he was never that person. So in, rather than mm-hmm. like loving on me and trying to help me, he was like, if I ever hear about you doing this again, I'll take your family. And <laughs> to me, that's oh like, right, like full on, like, yeah, it, it, it was pretty intense. So him and I got into it a lot. Like um, there was mm-hmm. no support from his side of the fence, um, you know, and I'll get into more of that, like and the reasons behind that later. But yeah, so um it's odd. Um I was working I was working construction. I finished up school like while I was still living with my in-laws. Um I ended up getting my associates in business management uh, cuz I was like, yeah, I could use that anywhere. But honestly, everybody has a business degree and nobody knows how to use it. Um <laughs> So yeah, I, I was like, yeah, I could use that anywhere. It was a good idea at the time. Um, I do feel like I didn't learn anything in school. Um, living with them. Okay, so sorry, I'm I'm going off. No, you're that. good. I'm going <laughs> off on a, a little rabbit trail here. But living with them, um, it, was gr- it was good for me to live with them. Mm-hmm. There was a lot of structure in their home. They always ate at the dinner table. Um, you know, it was always around six every Thursday night. They had worship practice. I was working on the sound team trying to do that. Like I, I filled my schedule. Mm-hmm. Um, there was no time for you to get high if, if you didn't have any time by yourself. So, um, so school work, all that. Um, and you know, I would lose jobs still. I was still losing jobs cause I was still angry. I was still, you know, I was coming down mm-hmm. a lot like still, and you know, for those of us who don't understand it is, you know, it takes like three or four years after you stop using for your mind to fully start developing and rehealing. 
you know, mm-hmm. and, and for your mind to start functioning at the level it's supposed to, it can take anywhere between three and five years. Mm-hmm. So I was still acting like a 17 year old nincompoop, you know, <laughs> I'm I'm trying to be appropriate. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Hey, no, I like that word. No, I, I can appreciate any good word, any good use of the word nincompoop for sure. Oh, no, that's perfect. just good language skills. You don't apologize for that. <laughs> you went to college. You yeah. got to show yeah. that, man. You got a yeah. degree, man. That's, you can use nincompoop as much as you want. So- <laughs> you spent two years longer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> But yeah, man, you know, uh, his, my wife's mother is actually a teacher. So she helped me through my math classes and things like that. It was really cool. Um, hmm. Right. So and is that something, um, this is just a curiosity, I guess we'll kind of jump back and we're going to jump back to where you are in the story now. Was that something that was in your household as a child, like that kind of structure and eating at the dinner table and those kinds of things? Oh no, man. Um, Never. I don't actually remember. I don't think I recall ever sitting around the table except for during holidays. Right. Um, it was always in front of the TV as, um, or, you know, um, we'd fix it ourselves and eat in our rooms. I mean, as far back as I can remember. Right. So I don't, I mean, even now, like as an adult, like in my own home, it's odd for me to sit around the dinner table. Right. Like I'm almost (laughs) uncomfortable about it. (laughs) <laughs> yeah and i mean probably like i'm sure it was like really kind of weird and new and honestly maybe a little bit like at first probably like almost an affront you know like what are we doing here like why can't i just yeah like uh, what this white, like this white family vibes going on here like <laughs> right i grew up in like this trailer where like the wind blew and the house would shake and now you guys are in like these suburbs looking homes and stuff uh i definitely married up Um, (laughs) as far as like social status goes um right my wife's family is very middle class upper middle class and i was very like hey my brother is now grown out of those pants i guess i get to wear them now you know (laughs) no definitely that's something i can appreciate for sure 100 yeah no that's an interesting thing man because like eating around the dinner table from what I like read and kind of understand is one of those weird like things that's actually really important for like families and structures. And you can actually kind of learn a lot about a family dynamic by kind of just asking if they eat at the dinner table or not. Kind of like what the structure looks like and kind of like what the kids' schedule look like and just kind of some general dynamic things that like center around families being able to come together at one point at night and just talk about their day, you know, like, and we started doing that. Yeah. What was that like as an experience? You know, like when you've been at work all day, you come home, you come home to your uh, in-laws house, you sit down, you're eating and they start asking you what you did today. Kind of what was was it? You just got fired. (laughs) Yeah. 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 (laughs) It was weird. (laughs) I don't know. I didn't know like how to react. It like made me super uncomfortable. It's like, why do you guys Mm -hmm. care about me like that? Yeah. You know, like, I don't, you don't know me like that. Like, why do you care? Mm-hmm. And because, hmm. you know, I had this weird and, understanding of it. You know, my family, in a sense, kind of like left me out to, to dry and like left me in the middle of like my own struggles and basically just to figure them out. But then this w- random family that, you know, I've known for a few years is like, yeah, join our family. Come over for Christmas. Oh, we want to spend time with you every Sunday. 
Like, <laughs> I'm not. <laughs> You're like, you, you sure? mean every Sunday? <laughs> There's only two days during the weekend. Come on, <laughs> you get every one of those. <laughs> <laughs> it's just uh, it was odd you know um and i i still struggle with it i'm still having a hard time like wrapping my head around the idea of like families spend time together on the weekends like you know mm-hmm. um yeah yeah and i think that just kind of speaks to how deeply seated some of that stuff is you know and then i kind of relating that back to you in a more real way like we talked about before you know and i kind of we're kind of getting there i think slowly but surely the idea that a lot of your use stem from these un untalked about unaddressed like mental health challenges that you had been facing right and so now you're in a place where like how deeply seated that is and then you come to a place where people want to like actively help you with something and you're like and i think that's why people get confused I, i'm going to say this because i'm sure you were at first a little bit apprehensive to first of all, be helped. And especially by like your in-laws, cause there's a lot of social context around like, especially as a male, like things you're supposed to do and provide and all your like societal obligations. And then here you are struggling 23 year old, just getting into school for the first time, having structure for the first time sitting down at the dinner table, all this stuff. And so you're probably a little bit like, like you said, uncomfortable, maybe abrasive. And I think that's where some people might get the idea that like, kind of a jerk, you were a little bit ungrateful. <laughs> Yeah, kind and of I don't think it's really like an idea of like you being ungrateful. It's kind of just like you said, like it's so new and it's, it's like so uncomfortable. Shot. Yeah, definitely. And so, like, what was kind of their that dynamic like in that kind of sense? Were there ever any like kind of hangups between like, hey, man, Justin, we're we're helping you out a lot here, dude. Like, we kind of need like was your yeah, was your obligation just like participate or? Uh, no, I had to clean up and help with the dishes and, you know, around the house mm. and stuff like that. Uh, I mowed the lawn, which I absolutely hate. <laughs> <laughs> Mowing the lawn sucks. I'll be honest. I live in Alaska because I don't want to have to mow the lawn. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's... <laughs> and well, you don't. Eight months out of the year. It's fantastic. That's true. Maybe then not. there's those four months out of the year where I look at the lawn and wish somebody else would mow it for me. that's why you have kids right yeah she's eight so maybe maybe she could mow the lawn this year that's true oh there you go yeah i don't tell her that i said that like man i really hate this coburn guy i don't know Uh, mckenna i was on this podcast earlier and they said no 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 yeah and so what was that kind of like having that structure you know like having to mow the lawn or like you know being able to mow the lawn you know what were those like how did you feel going in or like experiencing those aspects of structure as well? I like suffering, so new. suffering through maintenance too. Yeah. Right. Like that's not something I feel like people in addiction or the times when they're active addictions. Yeah. And sure. active addiction really do a lot of self care and maintenance is kind of something that falls by the wayside. So how was no, that? man, I was horrible at that self care stuff, even in the beginning. Like, cause, cause to me it was like, I need to stay busy all the time. So like doing those chores and stuff was just another thing that kept me busy. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, so I was, I was trying to start a rap career at the time I was going to college. Um, I, my daughter was probably four. So learning how to deal with a toddler that is now talking to me, uh, <laughs> you know, taking care of whatever other needs that my in-laws need for me to do at the house. Um, 
my, you know, restoring my marriage because it was destroyed um, mm -hmm. in that time from, you know, my, my neglect on my wife right. and, and what I was doing in secret. Um, it was, I had, I didn't have time to really like, I didn't even realize that I was working through these steps of recovery mm -hmm. and, and making amends in these places. It just kind of happened, you know, right. Um, as I went through. And then when I finally, finally read the 12 steps, probably th almost three years into my like sobriety and my recovery, um, I was almost three years in and I read the 12 steps for the first time. And I said, I've already done all of these things, you know, just, <laughs> just living my life. You know, I went around and I talked to all the people that I hurt and I apologized and I, I made amends with my family who hurt me. And, and I started walking in my faith and paying people back that I'd wronged and, you know, without even knowing that those were what I was supposed to be doing to actually find recovery. So what I'm wondering is, you know, you're going through, you're working really hard a lot. And I know you don't have like a lot of time for, for thinking or really to yourself, but what keeps you from being like resentful or even like feeling overwhelmed or, cause you know, starting new habits is a lot of work because you don't see the results. You haven't seen how your life's going to be in maybe two years when things have turned around a bit. I mean, at some point you're just working really hard and you're suffering because you don't have your vices. So what keeps you going in that time? Like, do you reach out to someone or how does that work? Man, it was, it was God and it was music. And I'm telling you mm -hmm. that like, I cannot preach enough that, that God came in there and he provided every means and need for me to be able to move forward to the next step. And it was a slow, painful process, but every single second of my life matters today. Every single struggle that I went through through my life matters today after knowing really where it is that God was trying to lead me and guide me to. I tell people this all the time, like, just because you were in these struggles doesn't mean that you don't have a purpose or a plan. He's going to take mm -hmm. these things that you've done and in your life. Welcome to training. Life is going to hit you in the face. You're going to get trained through all these things. You know, whether you make mistakes or not, you're going to learn something. And then when I finally found my recovery and like started working through, through my mental health and healing, I started to realize just the amount of like strength and power that I was given through my life. And you so know, when you started um, working through some of your mental health challenges, um, I know we haven't gotten anything specifically and maybe we, this will be an avenue towards that. Did you use any resources or what works kind of some strategies that you use to start? Or what was your experience like? even just getting to address those questions, because I feel like that's like one of the hardest steps is the first step, you know, it's almost kind of like a floodgate to where the hardest thing is to open it up. And then once you get opened up a little bit, it's a little easier to start practice that uh, concept of sharing and being a little more open and vulnerable. Uh, did you use any resources to kind of get that ball rolling? For me to be able to share with others? Yeah, and just in general, and just uh, to start addressing like some of that tougher mental health stuff. So at the beginning of it all, I'd already been, um, before, you know, I'd started trying to get sober, I'd already had been working, um, on my mental health stuff with, um, a few people and I'd been given a couple opportunities to be able to write these songs for suicide prevention through the state. And, oh, cool. um, 
because that's something that I struggled with. People had heard that I was a rapper and they're like, Hey, do this. And I was like, okay. Mm-hmm. And, and so I already had been like trying to focus on those things and, and right. really heal from all that stuff. You know, even before I decided to stop using. Okay. Um, so it doesn't, you don't just wake up and be like, Hey, I'm not going to use anymore. And now I'm going to focus on my yeah, health. Yeah. For me, right. it was, I know that there's a problem because I want to kill myself. Right. I know there's a problem. So, so how yeah, I- how did you get to, so even before you stopped using, even before that, so how did you get in to, how'd you get access to the people that you were talking to at that time that were like, Hey, like, these are some things that we want you to do, or these are some things that like you look to be struggling with, like kind of what was that process like? So you guys, you guys grew up here in Alaska, right? Or, mm-hmm. or Coburn so did. You know, yeah. So you know how small it is of a community. Mm-hmm. Everybody knows everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, I was born here, raised here, uh, never really left here. And um, I met a guidance counselor in the eighth grade and he kind of just followed me through my high school years. And he'd always been somebody who I could reach out to and talk to. His name was Harold Henderson. And um, he kind of like followed me through this process. And even as a man today, he reaches out to me and we, we talk and, and, he, and he helps me through stuff as I'm just battling things still. Mm-hmm. Um, but that guy never gave up on me. He was that father figure that I needed when I didn't have one at the time. And, um, so I'm trying to think of how I want to word this for you because it's such a broad question. Um, Yeah, definitely. How did I start working through my mental health? I mean, I never stopped working through my mental health. It was my whole life. Every time that I would have a a, a lapse in like my suicidal thoughts and ideations, I would, I would grow through it and then move on and be better. And then I would, I would stumble and I would grow through that and I would move on and be better. And then, you know, so on and so forth. But it was this guy who stayed consistent in my life and he mentored me and he kind of guided me where I needed to be and where I was going. And he saw the potential in me. He got me my first job. He got me, he bought me my work boots so I could go to my first job. He, he, uh, he got me my first music gig for me to be able to do this huge, like, um, suicide prevention campaign with with uh, my rap songs and he was always pushing me towards something and some sort of goal that I knew I wanted but I didn't know what it looked like and right. and he could see it because he could see from the outside perspective of me and and kind of help guide me that way and you know once I found Christ I feel like Christ did that for me in an even bigger way where he started to guide me in other directions and be like hey those are the things I needed to learn over there. Let's go over here so we can learn these things. And it, it helped me to understand not only my own mental health struggles, but helped me to understand that like, even when I am struggling, there is a purpose in it. And there's something on the other side of that, that I can, I can gain some real knowledge from and, and keep growing through things. Um, yeah. I hope that makes sense. Cause I feel no, like it totally talking. does. No, that answers my question actually really well. It seems like this guidance counselor, or and that sounds kind of like a pejorative way to say that. That's not that was not, it wasn't wait, 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 as, it wasn't intended. What is pejorative meaning? Just kind of like oh, like this guy, you know, like kind of ambivalent, kind of just like 
Oh, okay. So you know, whatever. something's pejorative. It's just oh. like a little bit condescending, but a little bit ambivalent at the same time. You know what I'm saying? And ambivalent is like... Ambivalent just means like you don't care. Oh, okay. Like they're just whatever. If someone's ambivalent towards your struggles, they're just, they'll mention it, but they don't really like, mm-hmm. it's kind of empty. Yeah, the response shit. is empty and they're ambivalent. See, Aaron's using his college degree. He didn't yeah. have it yet. <laughs> but anyway, and so it seems like um, proud of you. your guidance counselor, counselor was kind of the guy that took like a vested interest in your life, you know, kind of that, like that mentor that you really, like you said, that you really needed, you know, so that kind of answered my question. I feel like it's so important for people to hear, man. Cause I think like when we think about schools don't need counselors or like we don't need to pay our taxes or like all these other things, you know, and like <laughs> how important those people are to like the, to people like you, man, you like, you know, like not to say that your faith wouldn't have picked you up at one point or another, you know, cause I can't say that for sure, obviously, but like, I don't want to undermine in any way, shape or form how crucial it sounds like this guy was to your life and how crucial that a lot of these like leaders that aren't in typical leadership positions, like guidance counselors, counselors in general, anybody that's like a safe person to talk to for somebody that's struggling are so, so, so important to like so many people. So yeah, Yeah. uh, it answered my question in that sense for sure. Like, I think that's kind of the answer, you know, is you got a really cool guidance counselor that was like, Hey man, like you have a lot of potential you have purpose kind of the things you're doing now for kids, right? Isn't that part of your job? It is actually, it is what I do for a living now. Yeah. So what is your uh, job and as much as you can kind of say about that? I can share anything and everything. My boss would not be upset at all. I can't give you names of my clients, of course, but I can share (laughs) what we do. Yeah. I'm a, I'm a suicide prevention specialist. That's what my, my main title is, but I also operate as a case manager and I run three sober living homes for men. Um, I've been there for almost three years, actually. And um, before that, I was working in recovery service for an organization called uh, True North Recovery, um, where we operated as peer support. And before that, I was just, you know, um, coming out of just coming out of my addiction, finishing college, and um, I was working in a warehouse. So um, just within the last, you know, four years, I've really taken my life and and shifted it to a completely different field. I went from working as a carpenter to now um, working in behavioral health. Mm-hmm. Hmm. That's super cool. It's so interesting looking at um, your story as far as we've gotten it and how much it like relates to recovery, but in a really organic fashion in the sense like your guidance counselor was kind of like an accountability partner. And you not having time to, you know, invest in any of your vices is kind of like the the phrase in recovery of building a life for yourself hmm. that you wouldn't be able to maintain if you had substances in it. You right. know, like, and, and seeing that, it's interesting that you found that path that a lot of people had to go a different way through, but it's a similar story. There's some universalities, yeah. universalities yeah. for sure. I, I think, think like oh, that's... Go ahead. Oh, sorry, you go ahead. I just think it's it's all deeply rooted in that in that mental health and really the traumas and the things that we experience as young people that mm-hmm. really lead us down these darker paths that sometimes, you know, result in the drug use or even even worse than the drug use. You know, um the other mm-hmm. things that you'd run across or the things that you'd be um shown along the way. So, mm-hmm. I, yeah, I do see the the relevance in the I see myself relating with, you know, even, even the both of you in things that right. I've heard from you. So mm-hmm. I think that's, an, that's important 
definitely. And it sounds like your childhood wasn't necessarily uh, super great as far as structure and care goes. Uh, so that is a, a good thing to bring up um, these adverse childhood experiences that a lot of people go through that we don't really talk to anyone about, mm-hmm. you know, and you never know um, what kind of needs are created by not receiving that kind of care when you're young that you don't realize you have when you're an adult. And yeah. um, I actually, I had a question and just kind of in for our general listeners, actually, we, we don't know all the demographics of our listeners, obviously, but typically I don't think they're kids. Um, <laughs> sometimes I would hope not, I guess. But uh, so even whether it's kids or parents, uh, I guess we'll start with this. If you have, if you had to give a piece of advice or two, or maybe just something for parents whose child may not necessarily be struggling with substance use, but just with some of the mental health challenges, you know, suicidal thoughts and ideations, uh, general depression, anxiety, all those different kinds of things, uh, all in different disorders. Um, what kind of advice might you have for parents of some of a kid who's going through that? You know, I get those questions all the time, actually. Um, parents mm-hmm. will come in and they'll be like, what do I do? What do I do? My son, my daughter, um, they're they're cutting their wrists. They're, they're talking about ending their life. Um, when both of those are very big shockers to someone who loves someone else, but um, just, just to, to take some things and put it into perspective for you, um, just because I'm scarring myself does not mean that I want to end my life. It means that I'm just trying to feel something other than what I'm feeling inside. Um, somebody who is, um, you know, talking about ending their life, they are less likely to end their life. So it is actually a good sign if they mention it to you. That gives you time to intervene. That's them crying out to help. That is, that's important. Um, the thing that I tell parents to the most though, and I, and I'm a little bit, uh, I'm really blunt. Um, not a lot of people like me because I am so blunt, but I will be blunt with parents, especially when it comes to a life or death situation with their child. Your job is not to take the power away from your children. Your job is to empower your children. And what that means is, is that every time that you bring it up or like, are like, oh, I got to get all the knives out of the house or, oh, I got to do this. I got to do this to protect my child. We're not asking for you to protect us. If we're going to do that, we're going to find a way. You're just going to make it a little bit more difficult for us, right? Especially those who are battling with those suicidal thoughts and ideation. You don't want to take away our power because we already feel so powerless. And if you come in and you're like, remove all the knives, remove all the guns, Justin's going to end his life. You've just removed every little bit of power from me that I felt like I had. And it's a hard pill to swallow. It's hard to understand. But by removing power from me, you're making it worse. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, Don't treat me like I'm somebody who is broken. I am hurting. Mm -hmm. I'm not different than you, though. I'm just, I just deal with something different than you. Right. Right. A lot of people think that, you know, suicide is selfish and you can, you can think that all you want, but do not say it to somebody. Mm-hmm. Never in your life say suicide is selfish ever again. Actually, I really hate that. Yeah. Um, 
you're telling somebody who already feels like they don't like themselves that they're being selfish and you're making it worse. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's so, just confirming what they feel. Right? You're just confirming it. You're, you're causing, you know, more problems on top of it. You're dealing with somebody whose mindset is literally everything sucks so badly that I don't want to live. Right. And that means that you have to be very mindful about how you address somebody. I don't, with the kids that I work with who are struggling with that, the first thing that I do is I listen to what the heck they got to say, right? Mm -hmm. Sometimes it takes 30 minutes. Sometimes it takes an hour and a half of them just spilling everything on me. Now, 50% of the time, that's all they needed was somebody to just sit there and listen to them. Some of them are a little bit more severe than that. And you got to work a little bit harder to deal with that. Right? Like we treat our kids like, like uh, we're their dictators or their leaders, but we live in this republic mindset right. of the world, right? That's not what America was built on. But we treat our kids like we're their dictators instead of listening mm-hmm. to their emotions and understanding that their feelings matter just as much as mine, right? right. Hmm. Oh, my daughter hurt my feelings because she's not doing what I asked, but are you hurting her feelings by yelling in her face? after she doesn't do what you asked like right there's a difference between like there's defiant children but then there's children whose it's deeply rooted causes are like the traumas and things that experienced and you got to get to those and you got to start chopping at the roots or they're going to fall over or they're not going to like those things aren't going to be removed from their life they're going to fail and they're going to end up on these addiction paths and i have to point all this stuff out to these these parents and just be like look your kid has every single emotion that you will ever experience. Mm. Think about that for a second. Every emotion that you have ever had in your entire life, an eight-year-old can feel. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so yeah. when your child comes up to you and says, Mom, I want to die, your reaction shouldn't be remove all the knives from the house. Your action should be like, what do I do to help my child today right. to make sure that they get there tomorrow? Well, that comes with like inviting people to life, right? So I do this thing where like I'll sit down with my clients and I'll talk with them and I'll share with and they'll share with me what's going on and I'll be and you know sometimes I don't have as long as I'd like, but you know I spend I spend a lot of time having a conversation with them, but I invite them to life. After that, I'll be like, "Hey, I want to finish this conversation, but I got to go over here and do this thing." And it could be like a mis musculous thing that doesn't even matter. But I'll be like, why don't you come with me and let's go do this. And right. they share with me. And now they're out doing something. They're not sitting in their bed. Right? Mm-hmm. And then yeah. it'd be like, hey, man, I know that you're feeling down and everything, but I got this stuff that I got to do tomorrow. I'd love for you to come with me. Mm-hmm. Well, now they have a plan for tomorrow. They got to be there. Right. Right? They're going to want to be there. And I think on another level too, you're offering them something that like, and I think this is another hard part for even just like people who don't necessarily have an understanding of some of these mental illness uh, symptoms, I guess. And even parents, you know, like, is that, like you said, they're operating from a totally different thought plane than you are. Like in the sense that it's not like, I guess here's the thing. When you actively want to die, that flips like the total thought process of every like quote unquote, like normal person on its head. Right. In the sense that like, 
And so now everything that you think is right, wrong, this or the other has to be, it doesn't necessarily mean it's right or wrong. It has to be reassessed through a different, a totally different lens that you have no experience in. And so I think that's a barrier for some people. And but I think to get over that barrier, you have to really, like you said, be mindful and open your mind to the idea that like, these are realities. Like these are, like, these are real, like, and they're very, like, they're very right here. And I think in, like you said, inviting people to life in that sense, like these are people that's backwards. Like I think a lot of people inherently think we have at least some semblance of worth. Whereas people who are really, really struggling with this stuff literally do not think they're worth being invited to do, to run errands, things that are like a lot of people don't even want to do, you know, like right, to do this or to do that. Just being around them. Yeah. And, and just they don't being, think people want to be around them at all. Or have companions or friends, you know, they don't yeah. think they deserve that or that they're worth that. It feeds itself. Um, and I think that's hard for people to really wrap their mind around. And I think that's why people get this misconception of that, like, oh, they're, they lay in their bed all day because they're lazy or because they're antisocial or because they are this or they're that, you know, and like, which you can logically get to from the starting point of I want to survive. Mm-hmm. But you like, it doesn't, you can also logically get there when you really flip that on its head from the standpoint of, man, what if I actively didn't really did not care about my life or like in the sense of, like, of my well-being or my, my my actual being here you know like my actual like living and it does two I, things it creates that understanding that somebody does care about you because they invited you to do something or do anything right like and and i might not even mm-hmm. show up but the fact that you invited me already makes me feel better that's a good point right i might never show up Mm-hmm. but now I know that there's somebody out there who is expecting me to show up or wants me to show up and I don't want to let them down. Yeah. I mean, everybody wants to feel wanted. I think that's a common human desire is you want it, people to want you around. I think that it, even more than that, like we, we want to be needed. Yeah. Even within a, within a family unit, within a community, there's a desire to be a part of something. I think it's easy to lose that desire when you feel like the people around you don't see you as someone worth valuing or let me put it a different way. It's hard to reach out to people who, who feel that way because I think like Aaron said, they're, they're starting from a different mental perspective, but that, that invitation is huge for sure. Yeah, yeah. So exercise and work are two things that you guys can do to fill up your time. Definitely. Mm. I think we hear that a lot, you know, in early recovery, for sure. I think like a lot of people that come into early recovery are like, you get into a few active things that like people really love. And fitness is always one of those things that like people seem to jump on. So I think it's, it's obviously like physiological too, right? Yeah, yeah. It's a community. You feel you. you your body feels good afterwards. You start to look better. Your self-esteem starts to kind of fly up. Like overall in general, I think it's a lot of positive, a lot of positive things in that aspect Hmm. for people who are looking for belonging and purpose for sure. Well, thanks again, Justin, for coming on and sharing your story as well as some great advice on how to help kids out who are dealing with mental struggles. Thanks for listening. This was you and I for the Kenai.